You're listening to audio from Grace Family Church. If you'd like to explore more resources or give to our ministry, please visit us at gracepsl.org. Let's open our Bibles this morning to Daniel chapter 11. Yeah, no, we threw 10. Sorry about that. Missed last week. Uh, Daniel chapter um, 11. And uh, the, the 11th chapter is actually a continuation of a vision that Daniel began to receive in chapter 10. Actually, chapter 10 is the circumstances of that vision, um, and chapter 11 is the content as well as chapter 12. So it's one vision, chapter 10, 11, and 12. But chapter 11 is also an expansion of the dreams and interpretations that Daniel received earlier in the book of Daniel, chapter 2, chapter 7, chapter 8, all of which revolved around the people of God, Israel, and um, four empires, the rise and fall of four empires that would impact them and God's plan of salvation through them into the world. Those four kingdoms are Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome, and all they span about a thousand years. It was, uh, through, it was Babylon that God exiled his people into in order to bring them back to him and away from idolatry. He brought his people back then into the land through the Persians, a land where their Messiah was to be born. And then through the Greeks, he gave them an international language to spread the message of that Messiah. And lastly, through the Romans, they were given a road system to take that message of their Messiah to all the world, to all peoples, to the Gentiles. Now, Daniel received this particular vision in the third year of the Persian king Cyrus, and it began with a short summary of the Persian kings who would come after Cyrus, and then the Greek king who would come after them, Alexander the Great, and then the division of Alexander's empire into four separate kingdoms. The main body of, this, of these verses today, verses 5 through 35, is a very detailed prophecy of what would happen after the Greek empire divided between the kings of the south and the kings of the north with a particular emphasis on one king of the north. His name is Antiochus Epiphanes, who we met in Daniel chapter 8. And then the remainder of the chapter, verse 36 through 45, seems to jump forward, way forward in time, to a future king who's a lot like Antiochus Epiphanes, who comes to power in a period that the Bible calls the last days. So we're going to jump into it. We're not going to get all the way through this morning, but we'll, uh, we'll get through half of it at least. Now, verse 2. Now then, I tell you the truth. So again, chapter 10, the circumstances through which Daniel received the vision. Chapter 11, here comes the content. I tell you the truth. Three more kings will arise in Persia, then a fourth who will be far richer than all the others. Now remember, this is that angel or supernatural being that is speaking to Daniel in this vision. So he says three more Persian kings will arise and then a fourth. Now the Persian king at the time of Daniel receiving this vision is Cyrus. The next three Persian kings, Cambyses, who is the son of Cyrus, and then Smyrtus, another younger son, and apparently he was murdered and then impersonated by another guy named Guamada, and that guy ruled for about eight months until the next Persian king, Darius the Great, 
uh, killed him, assumed the throne, reigned for many years, and then a fourth arose, richer than all of the others, Xerxes the Great. And that's exactly what the angel told Daniel in this vision. So he goes on to say, when he, and this is Xerxes, has gained power by his wealth, he'll stir up everyone against the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king will arise, this is Alexander the Great, who will rule with great power and do as he pleases. After he has risen, his empire will be broken up, parceled out into the four, say four, winds of heaven. That's important. It will not go to his descendants, nor will it have, po- nor will it have the power he exercised because his empire will be uprooted and given to others. Now, a little backstory here. The Jewish historian Josephus tells us that as a young man, Alexander had a dream in which he was visited by a man who was wearing a purple robe accompanied by a whole host of others wearing white robes, people dressed in white. And the man in the vision told him, now was the time to fulfill his deceased father, Philip's vision to conquer the Persian kingdom. And so he took this kind of as a sign and he began to do that. And along the way from Greece to Persia, he had to go through and conquered Israel. This is 329 BC. And as he was approaching the city and then to go into the temple and plunder it, as was the custom when you conquered a land, the high priest of Israel came out. It's a guy named Simon the Just. And he came out with all the Sanhedrin and the priesthood behind him to appease Uh, Alexander to keep him from destroying the city. And and they were dressed in, you guessed it, he was dressed in purple, and all the rest of them were dressed in white. And when Alexander saw this man and his face, he got off his horse and he bowed before him, before this high priest, because he was the very man, the face of the man that he had seen in his vision. The high priest then took him into the temple, opened up the book of Daniel, and showed him Daniel's vision, which predicted that a great Greek king would defeat the Persians. Well, now Alexander had his confirmation, didn't he? And he went on to conquer the Persians and many other lands within a few years. He died early, though, at the age of 33, and uh, his empire was divided. Uh, As the prophecy said, four winds, it was divided into four separate kingdoms, north, south, east, and west and given to each one of his main four generals. Now, this is prophesied 207 years before it actually happened. Now, here's how the the kingdoms were divided up. Here's a graphic, if you just leave it up for a while. The Western Kingdom in green, modern-day Greece, was ruled by his, um, his general Cassander. He was one of the four generals. The Eastern Kingdom... In purple, that's uh, modern-day Turkey, was ruled by Lysimachus, another general. Then the southern kingdom, that's a brown, it's where Egypt is now, was ruled by Ptolemy. This became the Ptolemaic kingdom, that'll be important. And then the northern kingdom in orange, that's Syria and Persia, ruled by Seleucus. This became the Seleucid kingdom. Now, you may ask a question while you're looking at that. Why is the Seleucid kingdom, the orange, called the northern kingdom when it is not the most northern among the four? Did anybody wonder that? Geographically, it should be what? The eastern kingdom, right? Why is it called the northern kingdom? The reason is is this, is because it is north of Israel. Between the north and the south, between those two is a little itty-bitty land that later on is called in this passage by the angelic being the beautiful land. 
The beautiful land, Israel, Judea, was right between those two. So the Syrian kingdom was north, the Egyptian kingdom was to the south. Now, why is that? Well, because everything in biblical prophecy, prophecy revolves around that little piece of land and that people. Everything. Everything. And I mean everything. It is the centerpiece of biblical prophecy. They are the people of covenant through whom God chose through Abraham to bring his son into the world to save those who would believe in him. And they live in the land of covenant where that son was born, lived, died, rose again, and one day will return back to that land. So that land is a land of covenant. They are a people of covenant. Now, that doesn't mean they're any more special than anybody else with the exception that God chose them sovereignly through Abraham. When he appeared to Abraham, he said, I'm going to, I'm going to make a covenant with you. And it's not a bilateral covenant. If you do this, I'll do this. That's the Mosaic law. This was a unilateral covenant. And in this, God said, I will do five times. Doesn't matter what you do, Abraham, I will do. This is what I'm going to do. I'm sovereign God. And one of those five I wills is I will bring blessing to the whole earth through a seed that comes from you. And that seed, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, for most of history, this this uh, people of covenant has, has rebelled against God. They, uh, when, when Jesus came, they, it says he came to his own and his own received him not, chapter one. And that's still pretty much the case today. Nonetheless, they are people of covenant because God is a God of covenant. And this is one of the main reasons, of course, why they are absolutely hated by the world and have been for millennia. It's not a racial thing. It's a spiritual thing. It's a demonic thing. Wherever you see anti-Semitism, there is demon activity. The reason is, it's not about race. It's about the God behind them. Amen. It's about the covenant-making God. So in the time between Alexander's death and the rise of the Roman emperors, the land of Judea was caught between these two warring parties, the kingdom of the north, the Seleucid kingdom in Syria, and the kingdom of the south, the Ptolemaic kingdom in Egypt. And they both wanted control of that land. And so they were always in between these warring factions. In this period of time, these battles between north and south is basically the content of verse 5 through verse 35. It is a very unique passage in the Bible, one of the most unique passages in all of the Bible. Because nowhere in the Bible is the prediction of the future as detailed and as specific as it is in this 11th chapter of the book of Daniel. And when I say future, I mean Daniel's future. It's in our past, but for Daniel. Daniel is, is given revelation here about things that are going to happen two, three, four hundred years in the future. And nowhere is the Bible more specific in prophecy. Theologian Donald Campbell said that in the first 35 verses here, of chapter 11, there are at least 135 prophecies that have been literally fulfilled and could be verified by historical record. So two, three hundred years prior, the angels tell in Daniel 135 facts that are historically verifiable. 135 in one chapter. These verses are so detailed and specific that many liberal scholars believe there's no way Daniel could have written this book. 
They believe that someone else in the name of Daniel hundreds of years later and pretended to be Daniel. That's how specific it is. That's how liberal they are. Of course Daniel wrote it because Daniel received supernatural vision from God and God not only knows the future but he is sovereign over the future and that is the reason we can have hope and peace and courage no matter what's going on in our world because we know that he is directing the affairs of the world to a desired end, a new heaven and new earth. Amen. Now, there's no way to approach this passage without a little history. I am sorry for you people that just don't like any history at all. But I have to do it so you can get a feeling for how precise that this prophecy is. Because that, when you see that, affects your faith in the veracity and the truthfulness of God's Word, because we're seeing a sample of it right here. We're not going to cover every detail, of course. That would be weeks, a lot of history. But I do need to draw your attention to enough of it to reintroduce Antiochus Epiphanes. We'll get to him in a while, because he's the subject of verse 21 through 35, and a foreshadowing, of course, of a final human king over all humanity just before the Lord returns, the Antichrist. And we'll talk about that next week. So the title of today's message, Prophecy Fulfilled, the title of next week's message, something like, I don't know, Prophecy Yet to Be Fulfilled. So we're talking about Daniel's future today. Next week, we're going to talk about what's in our future, what's in the future for all humanity. All right, here we go. Let's jump in. Uh, verse 5, the king of the south... Um, again, this is the, Pol the Ptolemaic Empire in Egypt, the king of the south, will become strong. But one of his commanders will become even stronger than he and will rule his own kingdom with great power. Now, again, the, the king of the south is Ptolemy. He's one of six. Now, these kingdoms are ruled by families, brothers, um, sons, fathers. It's always passed down. So there's six of them here. He is the first. He was Alexander, one of Alexander's generals. And it says here, one of Ptolemy's commanders, it says here, one of his commanders will become even stronger. Now, that commander turns out to be Seleucus, and he was the king of the northern kingdom, but he, had, he was forced to flee his kingdom for reasons I don't have time to go into right now, and he came and joined with Ptolemy in the south, and then Ptolemy helped him regain his kingdom in the north, and eventually Seleucus became more powerful than Ptolemy. Now, at this point, they're still buddies. But their successors, the next generation, they became bitter, bitter rivals. And eventually, they actually had to work out an agreement to keep the peace, and that peace was sealed, um, as the angel foretold, through an arranged marriage between the daughter of the king of the south, Egypt, named Bernice, and the king of the north, uh, or Syria. And together they had a son. This is second generation, kings of the north, kings of the south. Look at verse 6. It foretells it. After some years, they will become allies, which meant before that they were what? Rivals, right? The daughter of the king of the south will go to the king of the north to make an alliance. There's the arranged marriage. But she will not retain her power, and he, his power will not last. In those days, she will be betrayed together with her royal escort and her father and the one who supported her. So two years after this arranged marriage, this king of the north dumped Bernice and married another wife. 
And it seems like that new wife suspected, and maybe she was a little crazy too, but that new wife suspected that there was still a flame for Bernice, so she assassinated the king of the north, killed Bernice, and then killed the child. Sounds like days of our lives, (laughs) or something like that. Let's hop, there's more, but let's go ahead and hop to the third generation of the kings of the north and the kings of the south. So the king of the south arose, and this happened to be Bernice's brother. And you know what he wanted, right? Sweet revenge, and that's exactly what he did. He, took the, he, he came up, the, the southern king came and waged war against the north and was, was successful in battle. That's what verse 7 tells you. For one in her family, this is her brother, will arise to take her place. He will attack the forces of the king of the north and enter his fortress. He will fight against them and be victorious. Now, over and over and over again, you have details like this that just magnify the veracity and the, and the truthfulness of God's Word. I'm going to kind of summarize some verses now because we don't have time to go into every detail, but in verses 9 through 12, uh, these verses accurately foretell the fourth generation of the kings of the north and the kings of the south. It says the king of the north would raise a huge army and attack the king of the south only to suffer defeat. The prophecy then correctly predicts 13 years later that he would try this again, and this time he would be aided by the Jews, the people caught in between, because they were really weary of being oppressed by the king of the south. So they said, let's try a new king, the new king of the north. They only found out that one oppressor is the same as another. But anyway, he was victorious, the the king of the north, and on his way home to Syria, he spent some time in the beautiful land, the prophecy says, where he began turning against the Jews who helped him and persecuting them. Prophecy goes on to say that this fourth generation king of the north, whom history calls Antiochus III, would attempt to gain more power over the south, over Egypt, by marrying his daughter to the son of the king of the south. That's verse 17. It didn't work, so he turned his efforts toward invading Greece. He was, and that was to the west. He was subsequently defeated by a commander, verse 18. This is a Roman commander. History tells us that this Roman commander also took Antiochus III. His son kidnapped him and held him hostage for 12 years. Now, his son was who? Antiochus the fourth, otherwise known as Antiochus Epiphanes. And you know who that is, right? The abomination of desolation guy. And he's the subject of the next 14 verses. Now, he was not nearly as great as Cyrus or Darius or Xerxes and certainly not Alexander the Great, but the greater part of the vision is about this one king. And why is that? Well, because he will become one of the greatest persecutors of the people of Israel ever, and he will also be for us a foreshadowing of even a greater persecutor, the Antichrist. And so we can learn a lot about the Antichrist by kind of looking at this guy, his methodology, his character, his nature, and that's what verse 21 through 24 reveal, and is confirmed by history. I'll summarize. He was, verse 21 says, a contemptible man, despicable, who had no right to the throne of the northern kingdom. It belonged to his nephew, but he manipulated and deceived his way into power. Now, there's something to learn about the Antichrist. 
a great power of deception. Not just using deception, but empowered with a spirit of deception. He would create Antiochus Epiphanes, would create a false sense of security with whoever he was around, pretending to be for them. And just when they would let their guards down at the, at a, at the most opportune moment, he would take the advantage and turn against him. His deceit made him very powerful. And with that power, he became very violent. In fact, he was more than violent. He became bloodthirsty, a quality that was demonstrated then in two invasions of the South. First 25 through 28, first invasion. He was victorious both in power and through deception. And although he didn't conquer the South, he entered into kind of an alliance. It was a very shaky alliance. Verse 27 says, these two kings, Antiochus and the king of the South, with their hearts bent on evil, will sit at the same table and lie to each other. Can't have much of an agreement that way, and that's why it was a shaky alliance. But this, again, is foretold hundreds of years prior. That's exactly what happened. And while this alliance was being formalized, a rumor was spreading in Jerusalem that Antiochus had been killed in this battle with the south, and then the people of Jerusalem were jumping up and down and rejoicing. Well, Antiochus heard about this, and on his way home, with all of his plunder, he invaded Jerusalem and just kind of slapped them sideways before he went on to Syria. His heart was set against, verse 28, the people of the covenant. Now, the second invasion of the south is in verse 29. Let's read it. At the appointed time, he will invade the south again. And just let me pause there. At the appointed time. What does that mean? There's an appointer. Who is the appointer here? You can say it. Okay. We'll see that later on. At the appointed time. He will invade the south again, but this time the outcome will be different from what it was before. Ships of the western coastlands, we've met those guys before, these are the Romans, will oppose him. And he will, look at this, lose heart. Now how does a guy this powerful, this violent, lose heart? I'll tell you why. Somebody more powerful stops him. And this somebody more powerful was the Roman army that was really beefing up about that time. And history tells us of an infamous meeting between Antiochus and this Roman general that was over this naval fleet. After they got on the land, they had a meeting. And when the Roman general uh, met with him, he walked up to Antiochus and he drew a circle around him in typical Roman fashion. And he said to Antiochus, if he stepped out of that circle before making a decision to return home to Syria, that all of Rome would be against him forever. Antiochus made the decision to return home, retreated backwards out of the circle. But can you imagine the humiliation that he felt in front of representatives from the Roman army and also his own army to have to back away from that battle? It was unbearable for this megalomaniac. And he became very angry and rageful. And if he had been rageful before going through Israel, times it by a hundred this time through on his way home. But he didn't just come at him straight on. He uses what? Deception. The Antichrist uses deceptive power. So on his way back to, to Syria, he's traveling through. He comes to Jerusalem and he pretends to actually befriend them. To befriend and form an alliance with those Jews who had forsaken God's covenant, the backsliders. So he makes this agreement, supposedly, with the backsliders 
to have this kind of peace. He goes after them because he knows they're more likely to agree with them. The people who are walking with God would never do that. And so there seems to be a general semblance of peace in Jerusalem. Then without warning, on one Sabbath day with 20,000 soldiers, he mercilessly attacked and massacred the people and ravaged the city, just as Daniel was told by the angel. It says in verse 30, then he will turn back. This is from his showdown with the Roman general, and vent his fury against the Holy Covenant. He will return and show favor to those who forsake the covenant. He's going to try to work his way in through deception, but only for the reason, in verse 31, his armed forces will rise up to what? Desecrate the temple fortress, and he will abolish the daily sacrifice. Then they will set up the abomination that causes desolation. And this abomination, foretold in Daniel's prophecy, 360 years prior, committed by Antiochus Epiphanes, involved profaning the temple in Jerusalem by putting a statue of Zeus in the holy of holy place. So you got the outer court, the holy place, and then inside that, another uh, section called the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was. On that lid were two cherubim angel. Between those two cherubim angel, God said in Exodus 25, there is where my presence will meet with my people. So he comes in with this statue of Zeus. And by the way, he thought he was Zeus. So basically, what was he doing? He was setting up the image of himself in the very holy of holies. In other words, he made himself God. And that's why he called himself Antiochus Epiphanes. It actually, Epiphanes means God made manifest. So he thinks, I am the manifestation of God. You can see a little more about the man Antichrist here. He then took away the regular burnt offerings put a pig on the altar and sacrificed it, and along with other abominations, made the temple unclean, unusable, and therefore desolate, the abomination that causes desolation of the temple. Thousands were murdered, thousands, tens of thousands actually, and he did all kinds of evil atrocities, including finding every circumcised infant, killing them and hanging them on the parent's house. This guy was wicked and cruel. Verse 32, with flattery, he'll corrupt those who have violated the covenant. But then it says this, but the people who know their God will firmly resist him. Who's that talking about? Judas Maccabeus and the Maccabean revolt that we talked about. That's right here. And they resist him. They're also called in verse 33, those who are wise will instruct many, though for a time they will fall by the sword or be burned or captured or plundered. When they fall, they'll receive a little help, and many who are not sincere will join them. Some of the wise will stumble, so they may be refined and purified and made spotless until the time of the end, for it will still come at the appointed time. All right. Now, when you move from verse 35 to verse 36, as we'll see next week, there seems to be a big gap between this moment of history recorded in verse 35, prophesied, and what is prophesied in verse 36. Verse 36 begins with what seems to be a fairly generic reference. It says, the king will do as he pleases. And at first glance, you would assume, well, this is still talking about Antiochus Epiphanes. But as you read further into it, it becomes obvious that these verses of prophecy are talking about another king. 
because they describe facts that are not historically applicable to Antiochus. We'll cover those next week, God willing. But the most obvious reason for assuming that there is a space here between verse 35 and 36, many years between the two, is what follows immediately after chapter 11 and chapter 12. Look at what it says in verse 1 of chapter 12. At that time, what time? The time of this future king, okay? Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will arise. There will be a time of distress such as never happened from the beginning of nations until then. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So again, verse 12 begins with at that time, which means at the time just described of this future king. And at that time, there'll be four things. There'll be a great persecution or tribulation, right? There'll be a general resurrection. There'll be a final judgment. And there'll be the final eternal blessedness for all those whose names are found in the book, i.e. the book of life. So you know what that sounds like to me? The end times. The Lord confirmed that. He, he took these same verses and applied them to the last days. When he talked about the last days in Matthew 24 and 25, he says in verse uh, 21 of Matthew 24, there will be great distress, unequaled, from the beginning of the world until now and never to be equaled again. Who is he quoting? He is quoting Daniel. That's exactly what's written in the book of Daniel. It's a quote from Daniel 12.1, and Jesus applies it to the time of persecution immediately preceding his second return. Again, that's in our future. We're going to look at our future next week. But what I want to do as we kind of round the corner here is take what we've looked at today and apply these verses to our lives. All God's Word is profitable. Amen? Amen. You say, well, how can we profit from this history lesson today? Well, I'm going to give you three ways. There's three conclusions we come to when we understand these, these verses. The first one is the God of the Bible is the true God. Yeah. Let me explain what I mean by that. Since the prophecies fulfilled in chapter 11, and of course other places in the Bible, but specifically these, since these prophecies are made in the name of the God revealed in the Bible, then the God of the Bible and no other must be the true God. Amen. The only explanation for 135 detailed events to be fulfilled or foretold and then fulfilled exactly years later, is that the God who foretold them is the one and only true God. No other God can do this. And therefore, no other God should be followed or worshipped. The second thing that's obvious is the Bible is the word of the true God. Since these perfectly fulfilled prophecies are found in the Bible, then the Bible must be the word of God. Of course, there are other important evidences that reveal the Bible being the Word of God, but certainly fulfilled prophecy like that of Daniel 11 is one of the most important. The Bible is not a book of unverifiable spiritual sayings. Like other religions, when you look at other religious books, they could, they could have been spoken or happened anywhere in history. There's no history tied to them. 
That's not the Bible. The Bible is God's word revealed in verifiable history of all the nations in Daniel's prophecies here, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Syria, Egypt, Rome, and all of these nations kept meticulous historical records, especially the Romans. So God's word is revealed in the context of verifiable human history. It's not a pie in the sky. It's not something made up. It's not just spiritual sayings. God's word is truth, and it's revealed in reality. It was into a Roman world that our Savior was born, and it was on a Roman cross during the reign of a, of a Roman Pontius Pilate that he died for our sins outside of a Roman-occupied city called Jerusalem. It was from a tomb guarded by Roman soldiers that Jesus rose from the dead and appeared alive to over 500 people who in turn took the message of his death and resurrection to the whole Roman world. That is verifiable history. But we have something else to strengthen our faith. We not only have the outward witness of the historical verifiable, verifiable word of God, but we also have the inward witness, the Holy Spirit who dwells in us and makes God's word alive to us. The Holy Spirit shows us that God's word, John 17, 17, like Jesus said, is truth. That it's Hebrews 4.12, alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. The Holy Spirit bears witness as to its inherent truthfulness within it. We know it's God's Word because of the witness of the Spirit within our heart. So we have the outer witness and we have the inner witness that God's Word is true, that the Bible is the Word of the one true God. But thirdly, the third observation here or conclusion is this true God when we look at these 135 prophecies, this true God must be sovereign over all creation. Must be. There's no other way it could happen. The fulfillment of Daniel's prophecies show that the God who disclosed these events to Daniel and then brought them to pass is sovereign over his creation. Several times in this passage, we read that a particular event will take place at the appointed time. Four times. And the appointed time must have an appointer, and that appointer is the Lord. He not only knows the future, yes, he is Lord over the future. See, there are some people that assert, you know, well, God knows what's going to happen. He knows what's going to happen in the future, but he doesn't direct it. They call that like a, it's like an open theism, if you will. Like, the future is open. No, God not only knows the future, He is directing the future. God is more than a foreknowing God. He is a, a sovereign God. He is a God who, again, not only knows the future, He's a God who determines the future. He is not subject to the whims of man in the fulfilling of His plan. He said, all that I said I will do, I will do, and no one will stop me. Amen. He has no dependencies. Everything else in creation has dependencies. He has none. He is sovereign. If he is not sovereign, then we would have no assurance of a future final victory over evil. How would you know it would happen? You have no confidence in that whatsoever. You have no basis on which to stand. How would we know that victory is for sure if God's decisions were dependent upon man's decisions? How would we know or how would Daniel know that his people would in fact one day be delivered if God is not sovereign? 
And how could you and I be sure of any future promises God has made to us unless He is Lord over the future? See, if God is not sovereign and in control of all things, then there's no assurance of the outcome. You have no assurance whatsoever of what the outcome will be. And if you don't have assurance of the outcome, you have no hope. Because hope in the Bible is exactly that, assurance of the outcome that God said will happen. See, if God is not in the driver's seat, man is. And in that case, God's a backseat driver. In that case, he's dependent upon how man drives the car. He's sitting next to him. I'm going over there. The guy goes, I'm going over here. Well, no, no, I need to go over here. You need to go. No, he's not dependent on man. He's dependent on nobody. He's sovereign. And because he is, we have the assurance of final victory over evil. We have the assurance that he will, in fact, make all things new. We have the assurance that there will be no more pain or sorrow. We have hope. And we have peace because of that. Why? Because we know he owns the future. And therefore, I can implicitly trust him. Now, let's look at this from another angle. If God is sovereign and perfectly working out his will in all things, then how do our decisions matter? In a universe over which God is sovereign, do we have any responsibility, since he's determining, do we have any determining ability? Do our decisions matter at all? Do we have any responsibility for our decisions and for our actions? The answer is yes. The Bible teaches us that God is sovereign, and at the same time, human beings are responsible for their decisions and for their actions. If God is the ultimate decider then, one might say, well, how do our decisions matter? You know what? The Bible doesn't tell us. I know you wanted more than that right there. <laughs> People a million times more brilliant than me have been wrestling this for eons. Here's what the answer really is. We are not told. We are simply assured in Scripture that both God's decisions and actions and our decisions and actions are in play at the same time. How? I don't know. It's a mystery. There's lots of things that are a mystery. Maybe we'll find out one day. That will be one of the first questions we could, we could ask him. But we are assured that both God's decisions and our decisions, God's actions and our actions are in play at the same time, including our sinful decisions and actions. You say, what do you mean? Well, instead of explaining it, let me give you a story, a biblical story. Joseph. Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers. I would call that a sin. Well, actually, they wanted to kill him, right? And cooler heads prevailed, and so they sold him to some Midianite slave traders who were coming through. Now, that was a, what, sinful decision for which they were responsible. Amen? God is not the author of that sin. And he did not tempt them to sin, James 1.13 says. They were responsible for their sinful action, but that decision they made was also the outworking of the sovereign will of God that he eventually resulted in Joseph being made prime minister of Egypt. Now explain that. I can't. They were responsible for their sinful decision, but that decision was also at the same time the outworking of the sovereign will of God 
that positioned Daniel, part of the process of positioning Daniel to become the prime minister of Egypt. And as the story goes, prime minister of Egypt, Joseph was put in charge of storing up grain and then overseeing its distribution during a time of future famine. Years later, as the famine was so bad, it drove his brothers down to Egypt. They heard they, were, they had grain there, and so they came down to Egypt to get some grain. Providentially, Joseph and his brothers met face to face. There they were, years later. The last memory was saying bye to him in the pit. Now, all those years, he had an ax to grind. And they're thinking that. And they're thinking that he, here he is. You know, second in charge of Egypt. And they're thinking, he's going to kill us. At the end of it all, I'll get to the end of the story. Joseph says this. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives, especially, listen, especially the saving of these lives, because through these lives would come our Savior. This lineage goes, Jesus goes. This lineage must be preserved. Now don't tell me God's not in control. I don't understand how, but He is. But look at what it says here. Let me drive the point in just a little bit more. And I'm going to read it the way that people read it today. They may not read it this way, but this is the way they think about it. You intended to harm me, but God used it for good. Doesn't say that, does it? But God used it for good. God didn't use it. He did it. He intended it. There's two intenders here. God intended it for good. To accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. You know the same thing is true in your life? In your life, in your walk with Christ? Philippians 2, I'll give you an example. And then one more. Therefore, Philippians 2.12, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You work. Verse 13, 4 It is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. So work out your salvation because God is at work in you. Who's working? Both. You work and God's work. You exercise your will to work out your salvation. God exercises His will to work out your salvation. It's not one or the other. You will to act. God wills your actions. It's not one or the other. That's both. You know, it's the same thing with your salvation. I'll take it one step further. Years ago, I read a saying by a theologian, great theologian, J.I. Packer. If you've ever read Knowing God, you should. It is uh, one of the, most, the best books I've ever read in, uh, in my Christian experience, Knowing God, J.I. Packer. But in, I believe it was in that book, he said something like this, and it's not an exact quote, but he said, when you come to hear the gospel and you're standing at the doorway of salvation and you look above that doorway on the mantle above, it says, all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Romans 10, 13. And then you call on the name of the Lord, and you are saved, and you step through that door, and you look, turn around, look back on the top of the door. 
And it says, I chose you before the creation of the world. Ephesians 1.4. All who call, I chose you from the beginning. I can't explain that. Sovereign God, human responsibility. Not one or the other or both. One day the mystery of that will be explained to us. Until then, we walk by faith and not by sight. It's a divine mystery. But, you know, Scripture talks about these mysteries. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 12 says, For now, we see only in a reflection as in a mirror. Right? Then we shall see face to face. You know, I've heard it described this way. It's kind of like, remember years ago in the, the rest stops on the highways, you'd go in, and there was no mirrors in there, but they had this like shiny metal. You could barely see yourself, but you could see yourself, right? That's what it's like now. Very partial. But one day, we'll see him face to face. And then Paul says, now I know in part but then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Father, we look forward to that day, oh Lord. But until then, we endeavor to serve you, to walk by faith, to do your will on this earth. We know that you're sovereign over everything and over our lives. We also know that our decisions and our actions matter. We don't know how both of those work at the same time, but we know that to be true. And we're thankful for the confidence that we have because you are sovereign. One day evil will be obliterated. All will be made new. Till then, there's lots of work to do. Equip us, Lord, with your word and let us take it to people's lives. Let us be your ministers, your ambassadors. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. amen. Next week, your future. We'll see you then. Drive safely.